All right, open it up to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 1. This is a series that we've entitled Warrior, which sounds very, uh, all right? Um, but we're learning what it means to be a warrior in a context of our orientation is not of this world. Our orientation is the good news of Jesus. Our orientation is the kingdom of God. Our orientation is that we're not citizens of this world. We're citizens of a world to come. And so with that, we are warriors, but we're warriors in a different way. We're warriors in a way that God defines. We're warriors going to war against Satan, going to war against sin, going to war against death. And what that's going to require of us as Christ's warriors is oftentimes the opposite of how a world entrenched in sin defines a warrior. See, warriors in this world are strong and they're bold and they're brazen and they assault in a certain kind of way. We're to do the same, but almost with opposite things. Selflessness, humility, grace, aid, help, those kinds of things. And so Paul is writing to this young pastor, Timothy, and he's helping him to understand, uh, this is your warrior message. This is the warrior church. This is the warrior example. And as we're going to see today, this is the warrior spirit, right? What is the spirit of the warrior for Christ? What is the disposition that we are to hold? Now, last week we talked about how we as human beings, we love to know how to do things right? How to fix things and how to build things and how to be known by other people. And we love how. And yet Paul says the most important thing to start with is not how to do things, but why we do them, right? And so for Paul, he says the why of doctrine, the why of theology is central. If you lose the why, you will eventually corrupt the how. And so he gets into this whole thing about the importance of why good doctrine matters and why demonic doctrine is a toxin to the church and will affect your outplay. See, when we buy into doctrines that are outside of Scripture and we start to let those doctrines topple the authority of the Bible, then we start to get in all kinds of messes and we start to do things our own way with our own ingenuity and our own know-how and we rest on our how because we've lost the biblical why. So Paul makes this big deal about, oh man, guard the doctrine, guard the doctrine, guard the doctrine. He says that multiple times in chapter 4. Don't lose the truth. Protect it at all costs because that will drive how you do things. And when you get into chapter 5, it's exactly what it is. It's a series of how to do certain things. Now here's the crazy part about chapter 5. It is probably one of the hardest chapters to speak on publicly because it is a very situationally driven chapter. In other words, what happens somewhere is Timothy writes to Paul. Timothy is this young pastor, a timid pastor. Uh, he's trying to find his way. I think he's making a lot of mistakes. And so he's going to write to his mentor and say, great, I get it, doctrine matters. Now what do I do when it comes to the older men in the church and the older women in the church and the younger men and the younger women? And what do I do with all these widows? And what do I do with servants and slaves and elders? Paul, I need answers. On all of this stuff. And so apparently he sends some letter to Paul asking all of these questions. And Paul, being a good apostle, says, I'm going to answer those for you like a bullet point email. Right? So what we're reading now is the bullet point email. We are not given the luxury of knowing the questions that were asked. We just get the bullet point answers. And so what we then have to do is we're reading through it is try to discern, well, I wonder what Timothy's question was to warrant this answer. That makes it a little tough. 
That's like getting the, the response email without the original one on the bottom. You're like, oh, okay, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. So we're going to try to do our best to reconstruct the scenario to understand the bullet points that Paul is giving. So apparently, Timothy's first issue is this question of just older and younger people in the church. And so I don't know what he asks, just like, man, they're, they're difficult, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm getting in fights with them, I'm being friendly to the wrong ones, and I'm ostracizing the other ones, and Paul, what do I do? So starting in verse 1, Paul tells this young pastor, he says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, what I personally love about this passage is it's been with me for a very long time. See, when I first started out in ministry, I was 22 years old when I was first given the title pastor. 22. Can I tell you, when I was 22, I was smarter than I am today, right? I was much smarter. I was much faster. I was much more in the know. I was much more idealistic. And oh, was I a legalist. Oh, I was awesome, right? I was the, I, I was a robot for Jesus, man. I was like the Terminator and just as deadly, right? So, um, like, I just thrived on the know-how. And, and so, at, at 22, I mean, if you have a teenager, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? So, like, you know everything. You've solved everything. You've got the answer for every single dilemma and problem, right? That was kind of what I was at 22. And, and so, in the first church I was in, uh, it, its structure was very much like redemption. In other words, a plurality of elders, everybody's equal around the table, that kind of thing. And at 22, I actually thought that was true, right? So here I am, 22, sit down at a table of elders whose collective age was probably the age of the earth. And, you know, like, like I'm the young dude, and I'm thinking, like, I've got it all figured out. And, and so I would interact with these guys as though we were equals in every sense, in particular, our lead pastor, uh, I would think, hey, you know what? He's 40. I'm 22. He's been around the block, but I know more for whatever reason. Uh, and, and, and we're equals, so I would confront him as an equal. I would challenge him as an equal. I would push back on him as an equal. I would constantly do that until one day I got a pink slip. I don't know why I got a pink slip. I'm like, wait a minute. We're equals. No. We're not equals, all right? Uh, you're a pastor, I'm a pastor, but you're young, I'm older, and, and you probably missed the boat a little bit on how this works, right? Because again, I thought I knew everything, had everything solved, and so I didn't handle the older men in my life with respect, trying to win them over. I would just get in debates and want to win, right? There wasn't any of that. And, and so I know the danger of this, in fact, so much so, I became a lead pastor at 24, Right? So I was really too young to be a lead pastor, but by God's grace, my first situation beat enough stupid out of me that as I went into the second role, I knew I don't know everything I think I know. Right? I, I know some things about some things, but there's a lot of things I do not know. And by God's grace, I went into a church that had these older, wiser men that also knew that, hey, this is a young stallion, which means we're going to have to break him a little bit, but we have to give him the freedom to run too. Right? And so uh, a lot of the time they give me freedom. Then every once in a while when I would start kicking up a little bit, they would put me down a little bit. 
but they did so with grace and they did so with love and they did so with investment. And I loved receiving that from them. The greatest blessing God gave me was to become a lead pastor in a church of really godly older men that understood how to work with a younger man. And me as the younger man, I'd have enough stupid beat out of me in the old situation that I knew that I could receive a lot from them. And there is huge value in that because now I'm 42. So I started at 22. Uh, I've now been in this for 20 years. I'm 42. And I'm kind of in both camps a little bit, right? I'm like in the younger guy camp, though my kids will tell me, no, you're just in the older guy camp. But um, I'm in the younger guy camp in some ways, and I'm moving toward the older guy camp, and, and I see both sides. And, and I see where both sides are assets, Right? The younger men of the church are an asset. Now, sometimes they act more like the first part of that word, but they're an asset. Um, and the older men are assets too, and sometimes though they can be a little bit more like the second part of that word, and they kind of sit more than they are active. Right? And, and I think that's always the challenge then for any of us as men in the church. How do we encourage the younger men to be godly, be passionate, be idealistic, but be humble? And how do we encourage the older men of the church to be esteemed and revered, but also helping them to engage because they have so much to offer? So much to offer. I mean, this is in part, I think, what Paul's focus is. And so as he writes to this young pastor, he's telling them, telling him, man, you need to be an example of how to reach out, especially to the older men of the church. Especially. And I want to say to all of us that are in the, quote, younger camp, which means if there's anybody in this room older than you, you're in the younger camp. Right? There's some great wisdom to be had here about how we interact with the older men. Right? I mean, we should start to first off pray, hey, if my attitude toward the older is like, I know more, I'm smarter, I'm faster, I'm wiser, I'm quicker, I'm more intuitive, our first prayer should be, Jesus, I repent, change my attitude. Change my attitude, because you know what? The older men of our lives, the older men of our church, they, they are Yoda, man. They are Yoda. They are Mr. Miyagi, all right? And, and you want to take that in. You want to actually say, I want to listen. I want to glean. I want to learn. Because here's the great thing about older men. They've been through a ton. A ton. I mean, we freak out as younger men about uh, having kids or making money or losing a job or uh, some dramatic event in life. You should go talk to an older man who's been through all of that and more. Right? My father-in-law is awesome for this because here's what he always says. This too shall pass. I'm like, no, you don't know. You know? And he's like, oh, I think I do. You know? Like, like he's been through it. He's been through it with his wife having cancer. He's been through it with him having cancer. He's been through it when the business is booming. He's gone through it when the business has nothing. He's been through all kinds of challenges. Lost his father as a child. Lost his mother young. I mean, you name it, he's been through it. So when I'm freaking out about, oh, I don't know how we're going to hire the new position for the church, you know what he says to me? This too shall pass. And he's got credibility, he's got street cred, because what? He's got mileage. He's got mileage. And the best thing that we as the young men of the church can do is to glean from the mileage. To glean from the calm. To watch the older men carry the weight with dignity. Because they do. Unfortunately, not every one of them does, but many of them really do. And we want to learn from that. Right? Right? To take the time to slow down. 
to understand. That's what it is. We don't want to get into that arrogant mode of, you know what, uh, they're just old, they don't, they don't know what they're doing, they don't know what they're talking about. You don't want to do that. They'll go Grand Torino on you, A, right? And you don't, you don't want that. Don't mess with old man strength. They win, all right? So, but the other part is you're robbing yourself. You're legitimately robbing yourself. I'll tell you, one of the coolest things that you can have in your camp, young men, is to have an older man in your camp. What I mean by that is an older man that says, you know what, that young man right there, that's a respectable young man. That young man, I, I really admire his grit, his tenacity, his heart, his focus. You know, you get one of your peers in your camp with you, big deal. Right? I mean, honestly, big deal. If younger people than you admire you and look up to you because you're hip and cool, big deal. It's powerful when an older man looks at a younger man and says, that guy's quality. That guy's quality. That, 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 again, that, that's impressive. Right? Because that older man has seen a lot of men. He's seen them do well. He's seen them blow out. He's seen them be egotistical and he's seen them be humble. And he knows quality when he sees it. So if you can get an older man in your camp looking at you saying, you are the man, you're in good shape. You're in really good shape. Now, does that mean you never um, challenge an older man or ever confront an older man? Well, Timothy's a pastor. At some point, he's probably going to have to do that. And, And there is a time and there's a place, but there's also a way. And the way is with respect. The way is with honor. The way is with a tone that shows a spirit that says, you know what, I'm not trying to beat you. I'm trying to understand you. I'm trying to share with you. I'm trying to win you over. But I think also in that, it means coming with a spirit where we're prepared to be won over as well. Right? To be truly, legitimately won over. To let them have their way. Sometimes to go, man, I think you're right. Even if it sounds simple, to really hear them out, really pray it through. Because I cannot emphasize enough the importance of the older men of the church. And how they just have been through more than us. They get more things than we get. I know sometimes as younger people, we think we get it. And I kind of look at that and I go, let me get this straight. So I'm looking at grandpa and I'm thinking grandpa doesn't know what I know. Here's the newsflash. Grandpa beat the Nazis. You're trying to beat the next level on Angry Birds. All right? So there's some clout. All right? There, there is some working knowledge there. Maybe, maybe they don't know how to set the DVR. Big deal. Like, that's a skill set? It's not a skill set. It's nothing to celebrate, but they know some things. And so Paul tells Timothy in his wisdom, hey man, you want to really, really regard the older men of your church. Listen to them. Invest in them. Win them over versus just win the argument. That's how you treat the older men. Older women, same thing. He says, treat them like mothers. I know some of us in the room will look at grandma and say, "Uh, but grandma's this nice, sweet little old lady grandma. What does she know about the troubles of a 21st century life? A lot. If you start sitting down and quizzing grandma, what you're going to find really quick is that grandma isn't quite the prude you think she is, right? And she knows some stuff about the real complexities and challenges of life. I mean, it's, again, not her first rodeo, almost anything she hears. In fact... Ellen and I were talking about this. Ellen was meeting with a younger woman who was talking about the older women of Redemption Church just saying, they're not going to understand my challenges. 
They're not going to understand my problems. They haven't faced the same problems that I face. Their marriages are good. Their lives are great. They're just everything sailing for them. And Ellen had to say, while keeping total confidence, is, you know what? Some of the older women of our church have faced a lot of hard things. They've faced having affairs and having been cheated on. They've faced having had abortions. They've faced, uh, you know, marriages that were really on the rocks and kids went sideways. And they've lost children. And they've buried their kids. And they've gone through a lot. And this woman was shocked. Like, I didn't know any of the older women would have gone through any of those kinds of things. No, there's tons of life experience and how those women came through that, trusting God, repenting about their actions and and moving forward in faith. To where the lives that you see today, these lives where we look and go, there is fortitude in their faith is built on the fact that they've learned to trust God increasingly through their life. Right? Respect the older women in that way. It's great, even my daughter, Honor, she's uh, taking a class, The History of Rock and Roll, Right? which is a real history class, believe it or not. And, uh, and, and, and it's actually been really fascinating, some of the things I've heard, but she, she, the first day she started it, she came home all excited. She's like, I was born in the wrong era. There's this dude named Elvis. He's amazing, right? <laughs> and my mother-in-law says, well, I was a teenager when Elvis, and she's like, no. In part, like, you were never a teenager. You know what I mean? Like, it's not possible. Your grandma, you know? And, and it's the reminder that, yes, all of our older people were once teenagers that faced the teenage challenges. And they were young adults that faced the married challenges and the child-raising challenges. And they, they went through all the craziness. They went through Jimmy Carter, all right? So, like, they get it. They know when it's lean, man. They went through Reagan. They know when it's robust, all right? So, um, just kidding, jeez. All right. <laughs> Except for the big time Reagan-esque people going, no, he's not kidding, that's just true. All right, so, um, but, but they know, right? And so we want to receive them again, right? As moms, as dads, it's why the church is a family. He says to the younger men, Timothy, treat them like a brother. I read this and I go, Paul apparently didn't have any brothers, um, right? I have three brothers, right? So I'm like, treat them like a brother. Let me get this straight. Uh, insult, bodily harm, uh, and double dog dares. I can do that, all right? So, um, no, here he means with that kind of loving respect. Treat them uh, like a younger brother. Nurture them, bring them up, give them encouragement. Here's what I know. Sometimes it means a swat on the nose because younger men can be kind of strong and forceful and opinionated and idealistic and all those kinds of things. And sometimes as more the guy above the younger man, you might have to be like, man, I love you so much, boom, you know? I love you enough to calm you down. That's sometimes it. But the other part of that is you can't just step in and swat them on the nose and then walk away and not have a relationship. Right? There has to be the, I'm encouraging you, I love you, I'm behind you, I support you. Now you're off the rails. I do that because I love you. Right? That's how we handle the younger men in our lives, which means a perpetual investment like a little brother and sometimes correcting in that way, sometimes just purely encouraging. That's the way we want to invest. And then to the younger women he says man invest into them as sisters in all purity what that means is you know what hug them love them encourage them but do it as a brother my son has two older sisters he tells them all the time you're beautiful he loves to get hugs from them he doesn't want to date them right he's not looking to marry them he just wants to encourage and inspire them and can i tell you men of the church especially older men to younger women um, that's a huge thing because you know what some women didn't have daddies who did that 
Some women did not receive that encouragement. They have image issues, they have insecurities, and when an older godly man recognizes her beauty, recognizes her fortitude, recognizes her awesomeness in the sight of God, that is a healthy, awesome thing. Keep that pure. Make your motivation, I want to be like a father to her, I want to be like a brother to her, I want to treat her in all purity. I'm not looking for any kind of, you know, like some kind of attraction from her, I just want to encourage her. I think about this because there was this one guy that every time he would interact with younger women, uh, he, he, he thought he was just being charming. It was clear he was being flirtatious. And his wife would sit there and watch it every time and just be like, you're flirting. No, I'm just being nice. No, you're being a perv is what you're being, right? That's what you're doing. And your wife sees it. We all see it. I love you enough to say stop. Because now you're trying to get something from being recognized by these younger women, even though you're just trying to be charming. No, it's in all purity. Right? If you do this with all purity to the women of your life, the women in your church, the women in your sphere, and they feel you're a healthy, wholesome, holy man, just esteeming them in Christ, that's powerful. I was just reading a couple of different articles this week on the effects of pornography on the teenage male mind and how one of the biggest things is that boys who are being exposed to porn now like at nine years of age and wiring their brain differently is basically wiring it to dishonor women and just see them as chunks of meat, right? No honor, no respect, no purity, seeing them as an object or a tool. So all the more, the men of the church, you young men, you teenage men, choose your purity, choose to say, I'm not going to go down that road because, again, it's going to shape how I see women, which is not this way, not as sisters. Seeing them as lust objects, seeing them as things for personal gratification. Paul says, don't go down that road. Right? Make the investment to the older men, to the older women, to the younger men, to the younger women in a godly and pure way. That is the nature of the family of the church. So he says, that's how you handle that. Then Paul jumps to the next bullet point. After having dealt with that at the most generic level, he then moves into a specific category of some of the older women of the church. He moves into widows. And here he starts off by saying, honor widows. It's that simple. Honor the widows. Now this is an important topic to the Bible because the Bible often talks about orphans, talks about widows, it talks about aliens and strangers, and in every one of those contexts, you see God saying, you know what, here's what you need to do. You need to care for them, you need to watch out for them, you need to provide for them, you need to make an investment into them because they have nothing. They don't have a home, they don't have a family, they don't have any roots. Your job is to take them and care for them. This is why the Bible says that God is the father to the fatherless. A little bit like the Nelson story. How God gave a father and a little baby to one another because the baby needed a father and the father needed a baby and God looked out for both. Such a powerful thing. Well, we're to look out as well because God is the father to the fatherless. He is the defender of the widow, it says in Psalms. We think about James, where James says, pure religion is this, to look out for orphans and widows in their time of need. Jesus talks about widows in a different context, where he warns of the sinister nature of religion, when religion just shows up, sips some coffee, has a southern twang, says, we love you widows, have you given to the church yet? And then they leave, and they don't really care for the widows, and in that he says, you know what, those are the worst of the worst. Where they just wine, dine, coffee, schmooze, but don't care. 
So widows are a big deal. And so Paul writes on widows and he says, you need to honor the widows. Here's going to be where it's tricky. When he says this, he doesn't mean, though, honor all widows in every way the same way. That's where this gets tricky. He's going to say, you're going to honor the widows in your church, but there are different kinds of widows with different kinds of needs, and you need to honor them all based on the right context of what their need really is. Right? So uh, what the tendency would be is that every widow was just sort of on the payroll. And maybe that's exactly what the problem was. Timothy writes, Paul says, I don't know what to do. Everybody who has the label widow instantly feels entitled to receive money from the church. Paul, is this right? Is this wrong? What should I do? Because we have all kinds of different widows. And Paul's going to say, you know what? All widows are widows, but not all widows are handled the same. So he's going to deal with the first group. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. Right? So there's these truly widows. And, and, and we see this, even this word honor here a little bit has the undertone of financially help and support. Right? The church is to give aid to these types of widows. Right? Now, what is that kind of widow? What is a true widow? Verse 5 says, Now a true widow, a woman who is truly alone in this world, has placed her hope in God. She prays night and day, asking God for his help. So, again, the scenario is an individual, a woman, who has obviously no husband because he's passed, no kids, no grandkids, no cousins, no aunt, no uncle, no anybody. All she has is God. And so every day she wakes up, hungry belly, uncertainty of the day, going to God, saying, God, you're all I have. This is all I have in my whole life. I need your help. Paul says, that's a true widow. Identify the true widows in your midst. Be benevolent to the true widows in your midst. In fact, today, after this service, as you're walking out the door, we're going to have an elder right there, and we're going to have an elder right here, and they're going to have a bucket, and that is our benevolence offering. We take that on Communion Sunday. We do a standard offering in the service. We have a benevolence offering after the service at these two doors. And the benevolence is for these types of scenarios. For those who have no one, For those who have nothing, they go to God and they say, God, help me make my rent. God, help me pay the utilities. God, help me get some food. I don't know who to turn to. That's how we seek to use benevolence in our church. And if you'd like to give to that, we would love that. Now, that extends beyond just the pure definition of widows. It might be single moms with kids that just have nothing. It might be an elderly couple that has nothing. It might be an older man who's a widower, has nothing. But we go, hey, we want to be benevolent that way because you are truly one in need. Paul says you look out for those ones. You care about those ones. So you go, those are the ones you give support to. Here's what's weird. Here's where Paul then jumps ship from our standard understanding and says in verse 6, but the widows who live only for pleasure, well, she is spiritually dead even while she lives. So here's the crazy part. Timothy says, how do I handle all the widows? Paul says, the widows that are truly widows, you help them financially. He says, well, what about the other ones that are impure? And Paul says, uh, you're, you're not supposed to help those. The way you honor them is to not help them. The way you honor them is hopefully by not helping them, they'll see that their continued life of seeking purity over, or seeking a passion and pleasure over purity will draw them back to wanting to live a life of purity and from that they can have support. But if they want to live just in their pleasure, Paul says, don't, don't aid that. Don't back that. Now, somebody can say, but, but she's still a widow, right? Like, well, why wouldn't you help? Paul says, because she's a widow taking advantage of others and staying in her sinful uh, desires. Uh, and, and the best way to help her get out of that is to not subsidize that. 
Right? That's the best way. Now, I know some of you are sitting here going, wait, how can a widow be impure? They're older, right? Well, um, you're laughing. It's going to get worse. All right, so... Now, one of our elders back in Spokane, his wife worked for a retirement home, and I was talking to her one time. I said, what is the hardest part about working at a retire home, retirement home? Is it just that nobody comes to visit their parents anymore and that kind of thing? She goes, no, the worst part is we're always having to break them up sexually. I'm like, no. She's like, yeah. She goes, they ache and they're ailed all day. They're looking for some form of pleasure, so we're constantly having to step in because they're wanting to be intimate together. They're not married couples, just... You know, like there's four dudes that are widows and 400 single ladies. And so like, you know, it, that's just that she said that was the number one challenge they faced in their establishment, you know, and I'm like, wow, you know, they're old, but they're not dead. I didn't know, you know, like, like that's the problem. And, and so apparently at some level that was a problem too. So Paul says, you know, for the, the women that are going that route, don't support that. The ones that are truly widows have nobody support them. Well, what about those who are pure but have family? Well, then Paul gets into that, right? He says, but if she has children or grandchildren, verse 4, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents for taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. He says in verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. See, before we had a social security system or any of the government aid or backing, the church was the system, right? So even in the first century, in Ephesus, where Timothy's pastoring, it's the same thing. The church is the system. And every widow wanted to be on the system. And Paul had to step in and say, Timothy, here's how you do it, right? If they have family, their family should take care of them. Whether it's children or grandchildren or extended family, the family should take care of a widow. It puts a lot of requirement on us as families to do that. This is now if, if they're in the other categories, right? They have no one to care for them. You take care of them. If they have no one to care for them, but they seek pleasure, they need to repent to come to that state of being taken care of. But if they have family, it's the responsibility of the family. And this pleases God. This actually brings pleasure to God. He goes, man, I love when I see that, right? In fact, in verse seven, he says, give these instructions to the church so that no one will be open to criticism. And then he says something very strong. He says, but those who won't care for their relatives, especially those of their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. You want to be worse than an unbeliever? Don't take care of grandma. You want to be worse than an unbeliever? Have a widow in your family, somebody in true need that you neglect. And you undermine the very essence of what you believe. Now, we live in an environment where financial aid may be available to the elderly of our country at different levels. So we might not have the fiscal responsibility always, but I think there's a deeper thing, which is, are you actually taking care of the older people in your life, especially those who have no one? By that, are you giving them your time? Are you giving them relationship? Are you giving them investment? Are you inviting them over for the holidays? Maybe it means you're going to actually have to drive to wherever they're living and pick them up and bring them to your house for the holidays. Or maybe it's a crazier thing. Maybe they don't need to live in a nursing home. It's just nobody wants to take ownership of them. And what God is saying to you is, it's time for you to take some ownership. You visit on a regular basis, or maybe you even move them in. 
for that sake of time, that sake of relationship, that sake of investment, that says, man, I, I esteem and respect and admire and want to be a part of the previous generation. Maybe that's the calling. Right? Because again, I know how easy it is to not. Right? We're all busy. We all have our agenda. Um, you know what? And, and if we bring them into the house or we're with them a lot, it's going to be the same conversation over and over, maybe. That can be true. Right? Sometimes that's just the reality. You're going to have the same conversations over and over. But you know what? It's not about us. This is about ultimately pleasing God. It's not even so much first about them. It's first about pleasing God. And then from that, it's how we serve them. The warrior of this world and the warrior of the world to come are very different. The warrior of this world takes. The warrior of the world to come gives. And so we look at this and go, what what, what do I need to give to the older, widowed, or needy of my life? Maybe it's a family member that just drives you crazy. God's going to teach you a lot in that one. He's going to. Maybe it's even less about them being taken care of and maybe it's more about what God wants to shape in you by you taking care of them. Maybe it's that. Whatever it is, I know that Paul says to not do so is to make us worse than unbelievers. We don't want that label. Right? We don't want that label. If you go to retirement homes, it's so sad because I think sometimes when you visit, I visited a number and um, it's kind of like this, this land of the discarded. Where they sit all day waiting for somebody to visit. And maybe what you have in your life is you go, I have no one in a retirement home. I have no one in that situation. Uh, well, don't worry. There's plenty sitting there waiting for somebody to visit them. You could do that. Right? You could just make an investment in one person's life as they are at the twilight of life because what you're going to realize is it's not the haven of the discarded. It is this hidden treasure that everybody avoids. They just avoid. Because again, we have better things to do. We have newer things, novel things, slicker things. We love as a culture young and vapor. Right? We admire the youth. It's just a vapor. Right? Young become old. We strive as a culture at times for wealth and fame and notoriety. I always laugh about that. It's like, hey, can you guys remember who won the Super Bowl in 1980 and who was the most valuable player? Nope. Just really don't. Fame, notoriety passes with age. Wisdom stays. A knowledge of life stays. It's making the investment. Maybe some of us need to make this right. Maybe some of us have some people in our lives that we know that God is saying you need to invest into them differently because you haven't been making much investment and you need them as much as they need you. So Paul says, man, make that investment. Now, aside from the widows in the church who might need investment made into them, he talks about widows in the church that the church can receive assistance from. And so in this, he talks about this special group of widows that would be sort of like deacons, these widows on a list, right? And these widows on this list, this enrolled thing, this gets into the qualities and qualifications of a widow on that list. He says, let a widow be enrolled to serve in this deacon capacity, basically, is the best we can rebuild it. If she is not less than 60 years of age, having, a wife, uh, having been the wife of one husband, having a good reputation of good works, if she has brought up children, showed hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. The fact that a widow may be willing and able isn't enough. There has to be these qualities behind it. 
a track record of faithfulness. So Timothy says, great, I've got some of those, but I've also got these younger women on the list as well, these younger widows. What do I do with that? Paul says in verse 11, he says, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, so to incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. What he means by this, uh, there's different ways to use it in the original language. They, they probably, along with the older widows, made an oath that says, you know what, I promise to stay celibate and stay single so I can minister to the affairs of the church. They just made a pledge. You didn't have to make the pledge, but if you make the pledge, you've got to be prepared to keep the pledge, which is a great reason not to make a lot of vows. Because you need to keep them. And some of these were making the vow, I'll stay single, I'll serve the church. Wow, he's really hot. Right? So, like, vow blows out. So, he says, don't let that happen. He says, besides this, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. Uh, not only as idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they should not. So, these women are younger widows. They're given a position in the church. Perhaps with that, they're even given some support in the church. So, they have freedom. And with their freedom, they go around and they say, guess what Timothy did last week, right? So, like, they're causing trouble. And Paul says, just, just dispense with all of that. Don't put them on the list. Don't put them in those positions. Rather, he says, I would have the younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Ouch. All right, so um, they, they were the ones that strayed after Satan by believing the doctrines of demons, which is uh, marriage is improper, but I'm going to go get married. Certain foods are bad, but ooh, are you going to eat that? Right? So, like, they were hypocritical liars still playing an active role in the church. And so Paul says, man, just shut that down. Shut that down. Now, can I tell you, as a pastor, I read all of that, and I go, I am so glad I wasn't Timothy in Ephesus. And here's why. Imagine that Sunday. Timothy comes out to the church. All right, I got a letter from Paul. Here's what we got to do. We know all you widows are uh, making a little money off the church. Uh, That group, no more. That group, no more. That group no more. You guys need to start supporting your family. You get to stay on the list. You're completely off the list because you're getting funky with people. Um, you know, like, like, right? You do that on a Sunday, right? You've confronted everybody. And on top of it, you've attacked the widows, right? So you don't survive that. You know what I mean? It's like, imagine going out to make all of that correction because people are going to be like, but they're widows and they have needs. And he's going to be like, I know, but Paul said this and this and this and this and this is how we're going to do it. And, that would be a drag. That'd be an absolute drag. I mean, as a pastor, I'm like, ugh, man, you're going to lose your whole church in a day, right? In a day. What he's going to need is very strong elders to come around him. And so Paul then speaks to elders. He says in verse 17, let the elders, again, bullet points, moves from widows to elders. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scriptures say, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. This is talking about elders that we pay, what we call pastors. And Paul is reminding Timothy, hey man, here's the criteria. Just as much as you don't want to just pay every widow for being a widow, you don't want to pay every elder for being an elder. He says, there's some elders that you support financially that you pay. You don't don't muzzle them as they tread out the grain. Those particular elders that you pay are skilled at three basic things. They lead or rule well, in particular at preaching and teaching. So you can say it's three things or a subset of the big idea, right? And so that's why we pay elders at Redemption Church. That's why I'm paid at Redemption Church. That's why Pastor Scott is paid at Redemption Church. We're freeing them up. We're making space for them to think, pray, plan, lead, strategize, that kind of stuff. 
And as a church, our plan is to always be a much smaller team than a bigger team because our heart is to use pastors to lead the laity, to lead the church. Right? So Paul talks about this, that the job of the pastors and teachers of the church is to equip all of you for the work of ministry. Right? So we're coaches, you're players, we work in tandem as a team to put a win on the board for Jesus. That's what we do. And so as a church, even right now, we're in the process, we're really just starting it this last week, of hiring a third pastor. Right? And the way we understand pastors at Redemption is a little bit like a trident. We have three things we care about, three things we want to build into a person. We want to make missional theologians for the glory of God. So if we broke that down, we'd say we want a pastor that cares about all things missional, a pastor that cares about all things theological, and a pastor that cares about all things worshipful. And it's like a trident. So those three things matter. And we make the investment from those three tiers. So then as a church, as we're starting to look at, well, uh, who is the man that God has for our pastor of worship? Uh, We're asking a lot of questions, we're doing a lot of homework, we're doing a lot of things to ensure that it's the right fit. We want to make sure that they are Christ-passionate. I mean, that they are just hungry for Christ. We want to make sure that they have solid biblical character. We want to make sure that there's chemistry within the team. We want to make sure there's competency within the role. I mean, these are all things we care about. We want to make sure that they understand the culture of redemption and Duval and the greater Seattle area, that these things matter to us, and we don't want to bring somebody in that those things don't align with because it says double honor those who lead well. We want to make sure this person will lead us well in all things worship. That's what matters to us. In fact, so much so. Then in verse 22, Paul says, Do not be hasty in laying hands on those or take part in the sins of others. Uh, As a church, we're taking more time than less time to figure out who that person is. Uh, We're working with a firm, actually, to help us discern that and dissect that more. Because here's what we know. Since this position is opened up, and since we've not marketed it to a soul, we have five people that want the job already. We have five people that have approached us about wanting the job already. And we've talked to this, this specialist firm, and they say, yeah, if you post this job on the internet based on who your church is and what you guys are wanting to do and everything else, he said, you're going to get about 400 resumes. Everybody's going to want the job there because you guys are that cool. You are. No, honestly, that's their point. Like, redemption, it's pretty cool. You're going to get a lot of And we know that. These are, some of these guys are in bigger churches than redemption that are saying, well, we want to work there. Right? So what we know is that we need to have real discernment in this process. Because we want to take it seriously because we don't want to be hasty about who comes in as a pastor at redemption. Pastor worship has a lot of things attached to it. But the biggest thing is that they're truly a pastor. That they're truly a pastor. And so we're sensitive about that. We want to get it right. We don't want to rush it. We want to get it right. So we don't want to be hasty. Not at all. Now, the other thing about this, as you have leaders or pastors, um, when a leader leads as a leader, uh, inevitably a leader receives criticism, right? There's always something that somebody says, I don't like that, I don't approve of that, I don't want that. And that's going to happen here too. When Timothy gets up and talking about widows, lots of people are going to be mad. When, when Timothy gets up and says, no, 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 we're not going to pay those elders or we're not even going to let that guy be an elder because he shouldn't be an elder. There's going to be a lot of criticism. And so from that, criticism can sometimes be raised to the heights of uh, you're not just wrong, you're sinful. And so in verse 19, Paul says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Right? 
As soon as an elder leads, he'll get criticism. John Calvin said it this way, none are more exposed to the insults and slander of people more than godly teachers. Because what a godly teacher does is actually brings the truth and confronts lives, and sometimes that doesn't always sit really, really well. In fact, a couple of years we had this. We had somebody had an issue with one of our leaders and came to our, our board and was like, they did this and this and this. And we're like, great, do you have any witnesses to that? Well, no. And we said, it was great seeing you. Have a nice day. Right? Now, some churches will be like, oh, what do we do? What do we do? Oh, we got, we got damage control, or we got to bury this, or we got to expose it, or whatever. And we were like, or oh, the Bible says, escort them to the door. If there's not witnesses, and by the way, witnesses are actual eyewitnesses. They're not two friends that you gripe to that came with them. Right? Because that happens sometimes too. I have three witnesses. I'm like, who are they? My friend, my friend, and my friend. Were they there? No. How do they know? I told them, have a nice day. There's the door. You know, like... Two or three witnesses. Otherwise, it's wrong to even receive it. Right? Now, I get some people saying, but it could have happened. I'm like, sure, it could have happened. But the Bible says, unless you have witnesses, don't assume that it did. You don't have to assume that it didn't, but you don't entertain it. You don't hold it. You let it go. That's what you do. Right? It's critical. Because I've been there. But if an elder is found out, there are two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. If the elder has done something sinful, their life is going to teach to that. Elders will always teach. They'll teach in their holiness or they'll teach in their sin. So if an elder has something that happens in their life at Redemption Church that is of a scandalous nature, you as a church will know. We don't bury that. We don't hide that. We will come and say, you know what? There was two or three witnesses. It's been confirmed. Everything else. This is what happened. Now that elder may be repentant. They may not be repentant. I don't know. If they're repentant, we respond differently than if they're unrepentant. But you'll know. Because that teaches. That causes all to fear and stand in awe. People go, wow, I don't want to do what they did. Can I tell you, that's a hard thing for a church. The church I trained in, the first church I pastored in, the church where I got the pink slip from the guy that I didn't show respect to, um, he was eventually removed from his church for sin. And you know what? That church said, that guy is everything. That guy is our teacher. We will die without that guy. That guy engaged in a, in a sin issue that wasn't infidelity. It wasn't adultery. It wasn't any of that. It was a little bit of just poor deciding and, and a little bit of manipulation on the financial aspect. And from that... They brought him before the church and removed him from his position. Because that church feared God more than they feared what people would think for removing him. They obeyed the Bible. Right? So sometimes you have to do that. But you're doing it because, again, God matters more. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, they charge you to keep these rules without prejudice, doing nothing from partiality. Right? Nothing from partiality. It's easy to be partial. In, in churches, in denominations, it's really easy to give in to, you know, just nepotism and things like that. This is what needs to be guarded against. In some organizations, the ingrown nature is so bad, even like a hillbilly redneck will be like, wow, those are inbred, right? Like, like it's too much, right? So there has to be impartiality in all of this. It says in verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, even those who cannot, be, uh, cannot remain. What he's saying there again is a continued addition to discernment. 
truly be discerning. Uh, be aware who's coming into the church that wants to be a leader. Who, be aware who, who might be rising up too quickly and maybe it's not suited. Uh, we see that as a church. We'll have people that come on a Sunday morning and after the first Sunday they're like, this is awesome, we want to be members. When's the next membership class? And I always say to the same thing. I say, uh, wait six or eight weeks, I'll say something that bugs you and then we'll see. Right? Like, you still might dig us after. I don't know, you might not. Hold on. Uh, or the very first Sunday, we'll have people come, on the very first Sunday, they'll come up to me and say, hey, that was really great, I got some suggestions for you. My favorite kind, you know? And so, I'm like, thank you for that. And you know what I know? I will not see them in three weeks. I, I, I Never. The ones that have a suggestion, week one, you should do this and this and this, I do not see in two to three weeks. Right? It's just inevitable, right? That's why you are not hasty. That's why you have discernment. Right? Discernment. And then last, Paul goes into employers, employees, and slaves. Paul dealt with this in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, and, and he says there, hey man, if you're a slave, you treat your owners like this. If you're an owner, you treat your slaves like that. Apparently the owners got it, the slaves didn't. Paul has to deal with the slaves. So he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, let all who are under the yoke of a bondservant do certain things. Now, is slavery bad? Yes. Are slave traders bad? Chapter 1, very much so. Yes. But it's still a reality. And so in that reality, he says you're supposed to live a certain way. So if you're under the yoke of slavery, regard your master as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Hey man, if you're working for a person and they're not a believer and you think they're kind of difficult, how do you respond to them? You honor them. You honor them. You should be known for your faith and known for your hard work. If you're known for your faith but not your hard work, you know what? You're tainting your faith. So he says, work hard for those who aren't believers. What if your boss is a believer? He says, for those who have believing masters, they must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since they who benefit from their good services are believers and beloved means if you have a Christian boss, don't take advantage of him because he's a Christian. Don't read your Bible for 20 minutes on a 15-minute break because he's a Christian. You don't think he's going to care. Right? Uh, don't get more relaxed for ministry things just because he's a Christian. You want to all the more work harder because, again, what are you doing? You're bringing honor. In fact, that's the theme throughout this whole deal. What is the spirit of the Christian warrior? Everything through this whole long text we went through is honor. Honor. You honor the older men, you honor the younger men, you honor the older women, you honor the younger women, you honor all the different widows in different ways, you honor the elders, and you honor your boss. Right? This is so different than the world around us that seeks honor for itself, seeks to be known for its honor in proud ways. We're to honor others, and in so display honor. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your grace and your truth. Thank you for what it means to know how to honor. Pray that we learn it. Pray that we live it. In your awesome name, amen.